Okay, hi everybody. We are get we are ready to begin. Uh, this is Danielle Karopkin speaking to you from um, from Thornhill, Ontario, for WebYeshiva.org, a wonderful platform of a whole variety of Torah content, and we are studying Moren Nevuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. Um, last week we had just begun. Section three, the third and final section of the guide. So we are, you know, moving along uh, quite nicely. We are going to do chapter one today of section three, which begins in the Pines edition on page 417. And we'll also try to get through about half of chapter two, uh, time permitting. Um, I want to point out a couple of important things. First of all, um, the introduction that we provided from the Rambam uh, in section three really laid out the Rambam's project for the next several chapters, which is to provide us with a depiction of the cosmos using the first, primarily the first chapter and a little bit of the 10th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, what is known as Maasei Merkava, the act of the chariot, where Ezekiel has a vision of certain kinds of chayot or angelic beings who surround the chariot of God. And these angels, according to the Rambam, are providing us with some glimpse of how the interaction works between the heavenly realm and the terrestrial realm in which we live. And for the Rambam, this is considered to be a noble endeavor to try and figure out the uh, the depiction of reality as it appears in Tanakh, because Tanakh is provide the the words of Scripture are providing us with an accurate depiction of the workings of the universe, and as such, it is man's um, important project to be able to understand intellectually the workings of the universe so that he he may better understand God, and through a better understanding of God, man fulfills his ultimate objective which is to become as close to God as possible through that intellection. I'm now going to share my screen with you because it contains a lot of important information that I want us to discuss for today. We're gonna to go through a lot of material today. I'd like to cover it um, uh, in a, at, a, at a brisk uh, pace, but certainly not to rush through anything. So just to review the project, which is our in our outline number one, the project is to examine the verses of Yechezkel's vision of the chariot and explain them in such a way that they depict that which science demonstrates is the working of the cosmos. And when I say science, it's the science of the Rambam's time. The Rambam was an Aristotelian philosopher. And as Aristotle explained physics and metaphysics, the Rambam believed that Aristotle got it right almost all the time. And therefore, he's going to find um, uh, um, references to Aristotelian science in the work of Yechezkel in the Maase Merkava. However, and this is something that we covered yes, uh, last week, because this is esoteric knowledge and the Rambam feels responsible to not reveal too much to the masses, he will interpret the verses to make them fit into modern cosmology, but will not explicitly explain the parallels between the verses and Aristotelian science. And this is really quite fascinating, is that the Rambam is going to tell us, this is how you should correctly read the verse without telling us 
why we should correctly read the verse that way. But what will become apparent when we look at the Rambam's commentaries, the commentaries to the guide, we will discover that each time the Rambam is telling us, read it this way, this is its proper interpretation, he's doing so so that it will fit into the Aristotelian depiction, a certain kind of teleology of a sentient type of um, in series of intelligences that are emanating into our world. Now, I want to point out something that we've learned many times. The Rambam had taught us in the general introduction to the guide that there are a lot of chapters that are not going to be adjacent to each other, but which have um, logical adjacency. Um, and a perfect example of this is what we're going to encounter now. The Rambam, back in section two, chapters nine and 10, had given us a very, very comprehensive detail of how this universe is pattern, especially the, co the, uh, the cosmic part of the universe, the, the heavens, um, are constantly imbued with patterns of four. And this pattern of four, as we're going to review in just a moment, makes its way down into our earth, our terrestrial existence, with also patterns of four. Um, the Rambam gets this idea of the patterns of four from the four uh, uh, chayot, the four angelic beings who have each one having four faces that are depicted in Yechezkel's vision. And it's important to review those chapters. We provided a very um, important set of lectures, both for chapter nine and for chapter 10. Um, we, we went into very great detail to try and explain the Rambam's cosmological system. Um, and therefore, I, I'm just, I'm not going to go back to all of it. Here's a sample of the pattern laid down in those chapters. For, so first of all, the Rambam had told us that there are four globes or sphere clusters containing stars. And the difference between a sphere and a globe using Maimonidean language is that a sphere is two-dimensional. It's flat, it's transparent, and it represents a moving, a moving body that is completely spherical, that is revolving transparently around our planet uh, and our, our Earth, uh, I guess our terrestrial plane, and embedded within that uh, transparent sphere are certain heavenly bodies. A globe is a cluster of spheres that are subsumed within one globe. So a globe is three-dimensional because it contains multiple spheres. And the four spheres that the Rambam said exist within our within the cosmological system that he's presenting to make it fit in with a pattern of four is you have the globe of all fixed stars, which means that they, they are not um, moving, they're embedded permanently within this transparent sphere. Then you have the globe of the five planets, which are considered to be um, in motion at all times. Um, and they are the, 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 the spheres of Venus, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And according to this cosmological order, they are all above the globe of the sun or the sphere of the sun. You then have the globe of the sun beneath that. And then finally beneath that, you have the globe or sphere of the moon. Um, again, I refer you back to chapters 9 and 10 in section 2 to go over where the Rambam gets this from. And even though he has to actually um, construct this order, in doing so, he actually uh, goes against 
the majority of scientists of his time and even contradicts what he had written in the Mishneh Torah, nonetheless, the Rambam feels that this is necessary in order for, their, uh, for us to see a pattern of four in the cosmos. The four globes are assigned to one of the, each one assigned to one of the four elements. The moon globe is assigned to the element of water. The sun globe is assigned to the element of fire. The planet globe is assigned to the element of air because of its constant motion. It causes what we would call ruach or wind. And the fixed star globe, because of its sluggish movement, is assigned to the most sluggish of elements, that of the earth. Um, and what that really suggests is that each one of these celestial clusters or bodies is in some way influencing the elemental components of our terrestrial existence. The forces proceeding from the spheres, and this is something that the Rambam had discussed not so much in chapters 9 and 10, but back in chapter 72 of the first section, that the Rambam had said that there are four levels of creation. There's the inanimate and inorganic, like rocks. Then there are, there's plant life, or what he called vegetal life. There is animal life, and then there's human life. Those are the four levels going from the most simplistic to the, to the highest level. And each one of these levels contains uh, some kind of force that gives it substance. And the four spheres, or the four globes, provide um, different influences in order to give rise to these four uh, levels of, um, of existence in our terrestrial plane. And finally, the four causes of motion within the spheres, and we're going to touch a little bit on this, uh, today is that uh, the shape of the sphere, its roundness, allows for circular motion. And of course, the most perfect motion for an Aristotelian is completely circular motion. The Each one of the spheres contains its own soul, which causes it to move. And each sphere has something which incites it to move. In other words, the soul allows it to move. And what gives it its um, incentive to move it's, it's intellect through which it cognizes so that each celestial sphere has something that we can uh, sort of compare to a human intellect that has sentience. And finally, there's a separate intellect outside of that sphere or just above that sphere that is the, the sort of the lure that causes the sphere to move toward it. And I'm going to get back to that a little bit today. But this is all just a review of what we had seen in prior in the prior chapters in especially in section two. And that's why I'm not spending a lot of time on it because the Rambam takes it for granted when we go into chapters one and two that we already know all of this information. The function of the first seven chapters of section three of the guide is to really go into a verse by verse exposition of the Ma'asei Merkava of Ezekiel, primarily chapter one, and to really explain it properly so that it fits into this Aristotelian cosmological model. So the Rambam starts off chapter one, which we're just going to spend a short amount of time on. He says, it is known that there are men, the form of whose faces resembles that of one of the other animals. Meaning that you look at sometimes you look at people's faces. One person may have may be somewhat dog-faced. Another person may be somewhat um, bear-faced. Another person may be somewhat dolphin-faced or whatever, 
or may, someone, another person may have sort of like a bird-like appearance. And therefore, when Ezekiel describes the different faces of the chayot in Ezekiel chapter 1, and if you recall from the, from the scripture itself, it says that one of the faces had the face of a man, the pnei adam. It's right here in verse 10 of Ezekiel chapter 1. Udemut pneihem pnei adam, the face of a man, the other one had the face of a lion, um, uh, another one had the face of an ox, that's usually how we translate the word shor, and and the fourth face that each one of the chayot had was the face of an eagle. And what the way that Ezekiel is describing it is that there are four chayot, each one of the chayot has four faces, so that no matter what direction you're looking at the angel, you're looking at one of its faces. But all of these merely indicate the face of a man that tends to have a likeness to forms belonging to other species. In other words, the, 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 the thrust of the entire first chapter is simply this. Even though Yechezkel describes these chayot as having one human face and three faces of animals, Really, all four faces were human faces, but the, the human faces had certain tendencies of looking like either a lion or an ox or a bird, an eagle. And it's not that they were actually uh, the face of a lion, but it was the face of a human having lion-esque features or ox-like features or eagle-like features. Now, the first proof that the Rambam gives is that if he says, if you, if you take a look at verse number five, he says, in his vision, and within sort of this fire and cloud that I see, I see the, the image of four chayot, and what they look like was, they all had the visage of a human being. And that seems to imply that even though four faces are described and three of those four faces are animal faces, really the fact that it says Dumut Adam Lahena, that implies that they all had human faces. Now I could have easily read the scripture a different way. I could have read that the words Dumut Adam Lahena means that they stood upright like human beings, but that their faces may have been faces of animals. But the Rambam does not like that reading and we're gonna to get to why that is shortly. The second proof is from the second depiction of Ezekiel's chariot's vision, which appears in chapter 10. And for now, even though we may go into this a little bit more in the ensuing chapters, for now we're only going to look at two verses in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is depicted as having another vision. But what the Rambam is going to demonstrate to us is that it's really simply a recapitulation of the first vision in chapter 1. It says there, there were four faces to each one of the chayot. The first face was that of a cherub. A cherub is a small child. The second face was that of a man. The third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. So automatically, immediately, you see something contradictory here. If these are the same chayot, why is the face of an ox now magically transformed into the face of a cherub? 
We'll get to that in a moment. The second verse says, hakiruvim hi hachaya ashereiti binahar kivar. These, uh, these keruvim, these uh, angels, were quite elevated, and it, it was the same chaya that I had seen in the Kavar River, which is the vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 1, where he says that I'm in the Chaldean land, Al-Nahar Kivar, over the Kavar River. So as the Rambam writes, strangely, the face of the ox is transformed to the face of a cherub, a small child. Furthermore, says the Rambam, ox is omitted to signify something that I have alluded to previously. And what the Rambam is referring to is the end of chapter 43 in section 2, where the Rambam was talking about the phenomenon of prophecy. And in that chapter, the Rambam had stated that sometimes scripture will use a word that is meant as an indicator for something completely different that sounds like or has similar letters to the word that the prophet is envisioning. So the example that the Rambam, he, Rambam gives multiple examples, particularly from the book of Zechariah at the end of chapter 43, and I would refer you back to that chapter. But for our purposes, what the Rambam is pointing out here is that the word shore, the word ox, does not literally mean an ox. But many times a prophet will have a vision of something that is a, for example, in this case, he'll see the vision of an ox, but really the message to him is, think about that word ox in Hebrew and apply its other meaning, and that will be the true message that I am conveying to you. And so according to the commentaries, the word for ox is shore, and shore means vision. As in Shir HaShirim, it says, Toshuri Merosh Amana. You will look out, you will gaze out from the, the, the top of Amana. Or like Banot Alot, Banot Sa'adu Alei Shur. In reference to Joseph, it says in the book of Genesis that the daughters went up to be able to have a glimpse of the beautifully handsome Joseph. And therefore, what the Rambam is saying here in a very sort of um, uh, elusive way, in a very esoteric way, is that the word shore does not literally mean shore. Just like I've mentioned to you before that lion and eagle do not literally mean the, those faces, but rather human faces. The same thing, and especially the word shore is changed into a, a cherub because they were all human faces. And the word shore was simply an allusion to the fact that this was a very sublime visionary experience. Now, the Rambam then says at the end of chapter one that one may not suggest that the vision in chapter 10 was of a different type of angel, since it states this is the same Chaya that I saw in Har Kivar. And the last sentence perhaps is the most cryptic of all, thus that which we have begun to make clear has become clear. And that's why, like what in the world does he mean? Now that I've explained to you that all of the faces of the chayot are actually human faces, I've started to explain to you things which will help clarify what I started out this project uh, for, which is to make all of cosmology that is depicted by Yechezkel fit into the cosmological system of Aristotle. Now, what in the world is going on? How does depicting all of the faces of the chayot as having human faces now make this better fit into a scientific model of Aristotle. Now, we'll primarily be using the commentary in the next seven chapters 
of the Shem Tov, which is Rabbi Shem Tov Ibn Falaquera from the 13th century Spain. We'll just call him ST in our notes. The commentaries of particularly the Shem Tov observe that the Rambam is imputing humanity to the pattern of four in the cosmos, since each of the four celestial globes possesses sentience and human desire, purely human qualities that are in line with man's Tselem Elohim, having been created in God's image and having possessing intellect, since they are of a higher order of creation more than anything else in the world. Hence, they must be at least analogous to the human being. The Rambam's contention is that the intelligences that occupy these celestial bodies are of a higher order than even the human being. If the human being is a being of sentience and will, that certainly must be the case with these intelligences that, uh, that occupy and, and animate the celestial bodies. This is something that the Rambam has mentioned before, and he will continue to mention it. When I mentioned the idea of the interaction between the, cos the, the, the cosmic realm and our realm, it's because the Rambam, like Aristotle, very much believes that there is an influence of the stars. That is to say that there is some kind of emanation that comes from the celestial realm and influences, informs, and gives substance to everything that exists in our terrestrial realm. And as such, we need to appreciate that there is a sentience that is doing this, that is sort of acting as an intermediary of God in order to endow all of our ter terrestrial existence with the characteristics that it possesses. Now, Adkan chapter one, we're now going to go into chapter two. We'll probably only get through half of chapter two today because it's a, it's a more lengthy chapter. I'm not gonna go into too much of the text inside just because of time constraints, but let's at least begin to see the structure. Now that we know what the Rambam is doing is that he's going to tell us this is the correct way to read the verses. He will not tell us explicitly why he's doing so, but we'll look at the commentaries, primarily Shem Tov, to be able to understand how all of the, what the Rambam is saying is making this, making Yecheskel's vision conform to Aristotelian science. Ezekiel envisions four chayot. Each of the chayot in Ezekiel's vision has four faces, and also each has four wings. So the Shem Tov says that what is being alluded to here is that each chaya represents one of the four globes that we talked about above, the fixed stars globe, the planets globe, the sun globe, and the moon globe. Each globe has four faces, since each globe influences and gives rise to the four elements represented by the four ofanim, the wheels, that are also part of Ezekiel's vision, which we won't discuss in any length today. We'll get to that later. Each, but but it's um it's important to know that that's what the ofanim represent is that they are sort of like the prime elements that are being emanated into our world. Number two, each chaya also gives rise to the four orders of terrestrial create creation: the inorganic, plant life, animal life, and human life. Number three, each chaya has four wings. So, in other words, the four faces of each one of the chayot is sort of contributing to the four elements and the four faces of the four chayot also represents the influence that each of these chayot gives to all of the different levels of existence on our planet. 
Each chaya has four wings, which represents the four forces or causes for the motion of the globes that we talked about briefly above. What is it that causes the celestial spheres to move, to be in constant motion? So we mentioned above that there are four uh, sort of causes, four things that, uh, that are the reason or that are the basis for the motion of the celestial spheres. And the four wings in Ezekiel's vision represents the motion because wings is what causes you to fly to move if you're an angel or a bird. And therefore, the four wings represents the four Aristotelian causes for the motions of the spheres. Next, Ezekiel envisions each chaya as having two human hands. That's what it actually says in the scripture. If you go back and you look at the, the text of the, of the text, uh, of chap, Ezekiel chapter 1, he says, Videi adam mitachat kanfehem al arbaat rivehem, that they had the hands of human beings, um, uh, is what these angels had. And if they had the hands of human beings, that means that they each one of these chayot has two hands, two arms, okay? Now, what does this mean? This, the, the Shem Tov says that this refers to the fact that the chayot have human productive tasks of emanating to our realm, not like an animal who just acts on instinct, but rather there's a sentience that causes these angels to be productive in the way that a human being who's working in a a factory or or in any kind of industrious industrial setting would be working with his hands. The two hands represent the dual function of the chayot, the bringing about of new creations and phenomena, and the maintenance of already existing creations. Again, this these this is this is Aristotelian terminology that there are two functions of of sort of emanation of the cosmos, one which brings about new phenomena and new creations and the other force which maintains that which already exists. Next, the chayot are depicted in verse 7 as having regel yeshara, as having straight legs without any knee joints. And as a result, these legs can never sit. They are also described as being like the, the, the bottom of their feet are like that of a calf. As it says in verse 7, v'kaf raglehem kekaf regel egel. The palm or the bottom of their feet are like the bottom of the foot of a calf. Now, what in the world is that depicting? So the Shem Tov explains that straight legs indicate that the globes are simple and unitary and that they are constantly in motion, never resting. Because if you bend your legs, it's to sit down. And these spherical uh, 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 heavenly bodies never are at rest. The reason why the legs are the feet are defined as that of a calf is because the word egel, just like the word shore that we saw before, is a play on words. The word egel also comes from the word agul, which means round, describing both the shape of the globes, describing the shape of the heavenly bodies, and the trajectory of their orbits, which is always constantly um, in a circular motion, which according to Aristotle is the most perfect of motions. The angels are described as chovarot isha el achota, completely attached without space between them. And But then in verse 11, it says that their heads and wings are separate from each other. So it seems like what Ezekiel is describing 
is bodies that are mamish uh, touching each other and are really squeezed against each other, but it's only the heads and the wings that you can note are disparate from each of the other chayot. Ufnehem v'chanfehem, prudot milamala is what it says in verse 11, that both their faces and their wings are separate from each other, but not their bodies. So the Shem Tov explains that this attachment of their bodies indicates that the globes are like the skins of an onion without anything separating them. These concentric spheres and globes that contain multiple spheres are all touching each other in a perfectly aligned cosmological system. And that's really why the bodies are depicted as being touching each other. The detachment of the heads and wings from each other indicates that the movements of these globes are not motivated by the terrestrial realm. Rather, their movement is motivated by their desire to attach to the realm or sphere immediately above themselves, constantly aspiring to reach a higher level. Now, this goes to what the Rambam had said before, and that is that it, is, it would not be logical to think that the reason why the spheres are moving are in order to influence and to service the terrestrial realm. You don't have a king who services a subject and therefore you don't have a higher level order of, of creation, the, the celestial spheres working in order to serve man or in order to serve our terrestrial existence. If it's actually, even though their movement does influence and bring emanation and existence to our world, that is not the motivation of these sentient spheres. Rather, their motivation is the sphere that is directly above them. They see the motion of the sphere that is above them, and they are constantly aspiring to come closer to the spheres that are above them, ultimately trying to aspire to become closer to God himself. And that is the model that both Aristotle and the Rambam feel is a model that is in, not only inspiring to the human being, but also an accurate depiction of reality. Uh, when we think about it from a Musser standpoint, our goal should constantly be aspiring, like when we think about the angels that we describe in our prayers, we say that in our prayers, that the Ofanim and the Holy Chayot are trying to reach the level of the Seraphim, which are directly above them. That's the way we depict it in our prayers, to be inspired that every human being is trying to constantly aspire to reach that higher level. But from an Aristotelian scientific point of view, that's actually what's going on, is that the motions of the spheres uh, are taking place not because they need to move, because they need to work to serve the lower level of existence, but their motion is almost like the pursuit of a, of a dog running after, or a cat running after a mouse, or a, um, or in this case, a, a higher level celestial being trying to aspire to something higher than itself and ultimately trying to reach God. And that's the reason why the heads of the chayot are depicted as separate, to point out to us that their source of motion is above in the head, trying to, each one of the chayot, trying to reach out and to, to reach higher, not being connected, not being sort of going along with, with what's going on down below, but trying to be independently going higher and higher through their wings and their heads, 
to that which is above them. That's the way the Rambam understands it, at least according to the Shem Tov. Next, they are described as v'notzitzim ke'ein nechoshet kalal. In verse 7, they, these angels are flashing like polished copper. And the Shem Tov explains that the illumination of these chayot, or these globes, is coming from the twinkling and shining celestial bodies that are embedded in each one of the four globes. Then the motions of the chayot are described. There is no turning, no deviation, no curve, but only consistent motion. And that's really what the Rambam is saying can be found in the verse itself when it says in verse 12, lo yisabu belechtan, that the, uh, these angels do not, were not deviating at all in his vision from their regular trajectory. And that each one of the chayot went in the direction that its face was turned. That's also in verse number 12. It says, V'ish el ever panav yelechu, that each angel went in the direction of the way its face was facing. El asher haruach Wherever the ruach was, was of its face, that's where they went. Now, of course, immediately you're struck with an inherent contradiction. If Ezekiel's vision describes each one of these chayot as having four faces, and each face was facing a different direction, how could he then say that the motion of the chaya was, was, uh, was going towards whatever direction its face was facing? If it has four faces, then how can it be going in any one direction? So the Rambam uh, actually says, would only that I knew to which face. I have no idea what scripture means in that context. Now, he doesn't continue. He just leaves that as a question. But the Shem Tov in his commentary explains as follows. First of all, this all means that each globe travels by a different unique force in charge of that globe. Thus, each globe follows its own face or direction. It doesn't literally mean the face of the angel, but rather each globe or sphere has its own unique direction that it follows, which is why each globe moves in a different direction and at a different speed. We have each one of these globes moving at a different trajectory, some moving from east to west, some moving from west to east, some moving from north to south, and each globe is also moving at a different speed and at a different velocity. But they're all commonly moving in a circular motion around our terrestrial existence. When the Rambam writes, would only that I knew to which face, he means that he doesn't understand the basis for each individual force and why different globes travel at different trajectories. Regardless of that mystery, such independent motion of each globe and sphere is necessary in order for the universe to function properly. That is to say that if each sphere would move in exactly the same direction, the world would cease to exist. In other words, there's a perfect balancing of all of the motions of the spheres such that it gives rise to all of our terrestrial existence and it allows us to exist. That balance may be mysterious as to why some spheres move in one direction and at one speed and others move at a different speed, but it's like a, a perfectly balanced mechanism within a clock where all of the different gears are moving at different speeds and different directions, but they all contribute to the holistic whole. Next, the chayot, the chayot's movement is described as ratso vashov kemar e habazak in verse 14, back and forth like the image of lightning. Back and forth implies an orbit that continually maintains its orbit, 
such that it keeps coming back to points where it previously recited. And the Rambam points out that the reason why the verse does not say haloch uvo, but instead says ratzov he points out that there's a difference in Hebrew between those two terms. They both imply going out and coming back, which really implies a constant movement in the same orbit, such that you are always revisiting the place where your previous rotation was. That's what ratzov means like the movement of the celestial bodies, but haloch ubo could mean the same thing, but it means, but it, there's a subtle difference between the two. The latter implies that the, the, the body in motion seeks a final destination, and once arriving there will come to a rest. This is not the case for the celestial lobes and spheres, whose movement is continuous. They don't have an ultimate destination that upon arriving there they will stop. And that's why Ratsova Shov is used and not Haloch Ubo. Next, the reason the movement is compared to the movement of lightning is because lightning, number one, is luminous. And we said before that these chayot were luminous, but also lightning appears to emanate from the sky and then return back upwards. And if you want to study the, uh, the phenomenon of lightning, it turns out that lightning both emanates from the sky and emanates from the ground. And it gives us the, the sort of illusion, perhaps, that the lightning bolt starts from the sky, strikes the ground, and then withdraws back and goes back to its original space up in the sky. But that represents a motion that returns back to its origin point, like a celestial orbit, where it's constantly revisiting, revisiting its origin point and re going, always constantly going back to where it had previously rotated. And then, and this with this we're going to conclude just because of constraints of time, Targum Yonatan translates this verse in verse 14 as the creatures upon being sent to do the will of their master who rests his divinity in the high realm above them with an eye shot for them to see return in orbit the world. In other words, it seems like from the verse that Targum Yonatan translates that he understands that the motion of the spheres is because they see God or they see something that is representative of a, of a higher emanation that's coming from God, and they are constantly moving towards that as the source of, or as the inspiration for their motion. The creatures return as one, and they are as swift as the vision of lightning. And so the Rambam says that this indicates that the motion of the spheres is in order to reach out to the divinity above them. When the verse states in verse 12, El asher yihiyeh shama haruach lalechet yelechu, Wherever the ruach is, that's where they will go. The word ruach does not mean wind, but rather means purpose and will, as we have explained all the way back in chapter 40 of section 1, where one of the Rambam's definitions of the word ruach in Tanakh is desire or will. In other words, each one of these celestial spheres has a unique will that is informed and motivated by trying to become closer to the level of sentience and intelligence that is immediately above it, which to that sentient sphere represents the divinity, represents God's presence. And that is what is causing that motion. So when Ezekiel says that wherever the ruach is, wherever that desire is, that's how the sphere moves. The, uh, and, and the Shem Tov says, this refers to the separate intellect mentioned above, that causes the sphere to move in its unique direction and velocity. And finally, Targum Yonatan also translates that phrase from verse number 12, that la'atar de tihavi taman, to wherever the will was for them to travel, they traveled, 
they would not turn when traveling. The Targum seeks to dispel the notion that God might at some point change the direction and trajectory of one of the spheres. This is not the case, and this is signified by they would not turn when traveling, meaning that their trajectory was permanent and unchanging. And the Rambam just concludes that paragraph, which is now we're all the way, um, just for you if you wanted to follow the text, we're all the way on the top of page 420, understand this wondrous explanation. So for the Rambam, this is really amazing. This is really sort of trying to provide us with insight that the verses of Yechezkel are actually depicting that which Aristotle and his students depicted as the motion of this teleological, sentient, cosmological order. I just want to point out, as we did when we studied chapters 9 and 10, this exercise may seem to be somewhat cumbersome and somewhat um, non-purposeful for those of us who have a completely different depiction of the scientific order, where we don't see that the laws of physics are any different in the cosmos than from what they are in our existence, completely different from the Aristotelian depiction. The endeavor, however, or the project of the Rambam is what we should stay focused on. If indeed the Rambam's project is to say, I know the scientific order as, as science explains it of my day, my goal is to try and see how Tanakh is communicating that scientific order. And as we pointed out when we studied chapters 9 and 10 of the second section, the Ramban at the beginning of Genesis does the same thing when he describes the depiction of Ma'asevereshit, of the act of creation as it's described in the first few verses of the Torah, as being consistent with the Greek depiction of what some kind of Big Bang. And modern scientists today who are of a religious bent have also done the same. Gerald Schroeder, for example, in his book, Genesis and the Big Bang, does that. This is all an extension of what the Rambam is saying is a worthwhile endeavor to try to find a biblical allusion to scientific reality. Because if indeed God is the author of, of Tanakh and provides man with prophecy, he is also providing the early prophets with a glimpse of scientific reality that we have to sort of decipher based on our knowledge of modern science, of modern astrophysics and the like. So this is where we're going to hold it for today, my dear friends. I hope that you got something out of it, if not uh, an entirety of, of a depiction. We'll finish chapter two, Bezrat Hashem, next week. And I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you everyone for joining us. Have a great day.